calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Nightmare Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. Nightmare Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and the Story Podcast is produced by Skyboat Media in association with Jim Freund. Our next offering for the July issue is Death and Death Again by Maureen Ness. The story is narrated by Stefan Rudnicki. Death and Death Again is copyright 2014 by Maureen Ness. Mari Ness lives in Central Florida. Her fiction and poetry have previously appeared in Tor.com, Clark's World, Daily Science Fiction, Apex Magazine, and multiple other print and online publications. For more about her work, check out her blog at mariekness.wordpress.com or follow her on Twitter at Mari underscore Ness. And so ends this week's intro. So without further ado, let's have a nightmare. Death and Death Again by Mari Ness That evening, she kills him again. This time she works slowly, exquisitely slowly, taking frequent stops for food, for wine, for blood. Once or twice, she even excuses herself to go to the bathroom, apologizing for leaving him alone. They both know she doesn't mean it. I don't know why you're even bothering, he says, as she moves her knife towards his tongue. I sleep better at night, she tells him, cutting into his tongue and catching the blood into her latex-covered hands. They both know she doesn't mean that, either. Do you know how many times it's been, she asks him the following night. His head is leaning over to the side. She notes that down on her tablet 
as she notes down everything, how much he eats, how much he drinks, how much he urinates, how long it takes him to die, how long it takes him to come back. Do you? Slowly he raises his head. Twenty, he asks. His voice is thick, hard to understand. She is going to have to avoid deaths that harm his mouth in the future. Forty? More notes. No, she tells him, placing a tender kiss on his forehead before reaching for a rope. She is not unkind. Her notes include records of his favorite meals, which she cooks for him on a regular basis, feeding him by hand herself, bite by bite. She even tried to plant some citrus trees around her house after he complained about the taste of the oranges and grapefruits she gave him. The citrus trees have not grown enough to fruit yet, but someday, she assures him, someday. She has attached a television screen to the ceiling for when he is lying down, a second one to a wall for when she has him tilted upright. When she cannot be with him, she leaves something else, music, a film, an audiobook, a voice, so he is never truly alone. She comes back from time to time to see him sleeping with a slight smile on his face, as if he is dreaming something pleasant. It gives her a warm feeling, she tells him, and she often lingers for several moments before reaching for the axe or the gun or cyanide, something quick so that this death will not be prolonged. It's why he so often pretends to be asleep. When did you last sleep through the night? He asks her once, after she revives him again, after his heart settles a little. Does it matter? It might help. Don't pretend you care. He doesn't. He hasn't pretended anything in a long while, not since the first time she killed him. He should, she tells him. It might make it easier if he pretended that they were lovers, enjoying a romantic evening together, or spies caught by the enemy government, or knights seeking the Holy Grail, or even that nothing has changed, that this is nothing but a nightmare, that he is home safe in his own bed. Whenever he tries, he remembers the taste of poison, the feel of the rope, the pain of having the skin pulled from his fingers. He never remembers death or what happens later, but he always remembers dying. By now he should have developed some sort of love for her, some sort of Stockholm syndrome, but perhaps the regular deaths have prevented this. Shall we dance before you die? she asks. Fuck you, he says. She nods. It will have to be a slow one this time. You're taking longer and longer to return. Did we? Did we what? Ever fuck? Interesting, she says, leaning forward. I wonder if your memory is fading. I'm just trying to find... The knife is moving into his gut, and he is not any better at handling it. He is not any better at facing the fear of death, of that darkness rushing at him, no matter how slowly she kills him. Not any better at facing the pain. Damn it! She leans back in to whisper in his ear. It will be swift next time, I promise you. A gun, I think. He is supposed to thank her. Instead, he screams. He thinks he once had a life, though it's becoming harder and harder to remember, harder and harder to care. What does matter is how he is going to die this time, 
how much pain she is going to put him through, and how many questions she will make him answer afterwards. Sometimes she lets him live for what seems like days. Without windows, it's impossible to tell, but he thinks, based on the number of meals he eats, the number of movies she shows him, and sometimes watches with him, the number of songs he hears that it might be as long as a week, perhaps more. He has learned to dread those long periods. It means the next death is going to linger. Bad as the dying is, he sometimes thinks the revivals are the worst. Not just the horrible, painful pounding of his heart, or the pain left over from however she killed him this last time, but knowing that it is not over, that if she has her way it will never be over, that he will never really die, no matter how many times she kills him. If we fucked and I screwed you over, I am sorry. I am genuinely, truly, fuck! And then she is reviving him again. He doesn't really think they fucked. He is pretty sure they did nothing, really, until she brought him here to whatever this is. A house, she has told him, which it might be, although he thinks it also might be a former warehouse or industrial building that she converted to a house, but that's a guess. He's only been allowed to see four rooms and two flights of stairs, one leading up, one down. The rooms have no windows. This bothered him several deaths ago. He's over it now, although every once in a while he tells her he would like to see sunlight again. That would be a bad idea. This whole shit is a bad... The gunshot ends his sentence. Maybe that would work, or at least help. Keep her angry enough to use the gun. Of all the various ways that she's killed him, a shot to the heart at least has the advantage of being fast. And maybe, if he is lucky, she will shoot him in the head. He will still be brought back from that, but maybe he won't be aware anymore. Probably why she aims for the heart. What's it like? What? The other side. What? Death. The fucking gunshot? It hurt. That's what it's like. Her eyes are calm as she prepares the next set of syringes. No. What comes after? I don't remember. You need to stop lying to me. I don't remember. You need to stop lying. I don't remember! For once, death and the gunshot surprise him. Two gunshots in a row. He feels lucky until he sees her bring out the pillow. He shuts his eyes. Smothering should be an easy death, he thinks, but it always panics him, always terrorizes him. He is not sure how much more of this he can take, how many more times she will be able to bring him back. But he is back again, head pounding, a hellish pain against his head as she stands in front of him with the pillow. Breathing is hard. What's it like? His head hurts too much. The planet is tilting, tilting, and he can't breathe. He can't breathe. She isn't even killing him, and he can't breathe. Answer the question. He can't breathe. The planet is falling, and they are all going to fall off it and go into space, and he can't breathe, and he needs air. Doesn't she realize he needs air? The next awakening is a little less painful. I'm changing your medication, she tells him. I had some problems stabilizing your blood pressure last time. Also, and I am very sorry about this, but I think we're going to remove red meat from your diet for a bit. 
No, we are not. We are. I promise we'll bring it back in a bit. A thick, rare steak. But for now... The needle slips under his skin. He is so used to dying that he is startled when he doesn't. When, in fact, he starts feeling better. Liquid nutrients, she explains. She points to a large container by the wall, connected by a narrow tube to an IV bag connected by another narrow tube to his skin. Enough to last years at this rate, although I don't think we need to keep you on them that long. You don't fucking need to keep me on them at all. You won't tell me what it's like. Fucking painful is what it's like. He is floating a bit now, and although the planet is tipping again, this time it feels less terrifying, more like a gentle rocking to help him go to sleep. Orange juice? Not that fucking stuff from Concentrate. I have apple, she says, turning from him. As she does, he moves his right hand over to his left. He feels very comfortable, almost like giggling, really. Too comfortable to keep the needle in. It really should go out. He needs to tug. And then his right hand is being grabbed and put back into the cloth restraints. We really are going to have to do something about this, she tells him, putting the apple juice to his lips. You could hurt yourself. He finds himself laughing. I'll think of something, she says. In the meantime, though, you do need that IV. It's not part of all this. It's part of what you need. He cannot stop laughing. He sips the juice, watches as she collects his urine and leaves. He wonders if perhaps she will try drowning next. That hasn't happened for a while. It might be rather nice to slide underwater and stop thinking. A compromise, she tells him when she returns. She uses a foot pump to tilt the table he is on to an 80-degree angle, so he is almost but not quite standing up. He feels the restraints on his arms and legs pulling against him. He thinks of Frankenstein and feels the tears slide down his cheeks. I don't want to use it very long for obvious reasons, but this is a paralytic agent that will hold you absolutely still, or at least still enough to stop fighting me. He holds absolutely still. It may mean keeping you on the nutrients for a bit longer, she adds. But we have a lot of nutrients. The container you're hooked up to right now is enough to keep you going for ten years at least, maybe more. And it shouldn't impede our research too much. How will I be able to answer your questions, he asks. She smiles. How thoughtful. The smile vanishes. You've hardly been answering them anyway. I'm telling you, he says, I don't remember. It's just pain, and then I'm back here and you're talking to me again. Tears fill his eyes. You have to believe me. You don't believe me. I believe you, he says, as she slides a needle into his right arm. I really, truly believe you. I believe. Christ, I believe. I believe. Hush now, she says, bending over to kiss him on the forehead. Hush now. It will be all right. I'll give this time to work through, and I'll let you watch a film or two before I kill you again. I promise. It really will be all right. Her lips touch his forehead again before sliding down over his nose to his lips. And then her lips are on his, and she is trying to force them open. 
And this is too much. It is all fucking too much. And even if the world is tilting again and he is going to fall off it, she is going to fall off it. They are both going to fall off the planet, but he has to push her off it first because her mouth is on his and her tongue is moving inside and he shoves, pushing back with his feet and his hands and his head as hard as he can, feeling everything but his head caught by the restraints, holding him against the damn table, feeling his head knock against hers, feeling her push back and then watching, yes, watching as she stumbles back, her heel catching on something, her arms flailing, watching as she falls, head slamming into the side table where she leaves the syringes. He hears the crack, feels his lips twitch, and shuts his eyes as she slides to the floor. The planet lurches to the left again and again, when the planet is steady again, he opens his eyes. She has not moved. From the pool of blood beneath her head, he is certain she will not move. He tries to draw a deep breath. His chest feels heavy, weighted, numb. Everything feels numb. His feet, his legs, his chest, his arms, his arms. He looks down to see the needle in the left arm still steadily pumping in water, sugar, and nutrients, and the needle in the right arm, still steadily pumping in the paralytic agent. The wires on his chest, ready to jolt him back to life at the first hint of cardiac arrest. He would scream if he could, but his tongue is too thick, too heavy to move, and in any case, he is certain that he has many, many years left yet to scream. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the story. Please consider making a stop at our website at nightmare-magazine.com to leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Nightmare Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. Nightmare Magazine is published by John Joseph Adams. If you haven't already subscribed, check out our many options at nightmare-magazine.com slash subscribe. The stories of this podcast are produced by Skyboat Media the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrators Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. You can check out Skyboat Media's website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production is in association with Jim Freund. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. There's other ways you can be notified of new Nightmare Magazine content. You can subscribe to our free monthly newsletter or RSS feed, follow us on Twitter, or like our fan page on Facebook. If you visit nightmare-magazine.com and click on this month's editorial, you'll find links to all of our social media pages. This podcast is copyright 2014 by Nightmare Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Sleep tight. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.